right, so we are back uh, with Chris Catrone. We had a, 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 a beginning of a stream. There was some static on the line. I don't know what it was. Uh, maybe it was the ghost of Gita Board trying to interfere. Uh, but now I can hear you without any difficulty. Um, and I just want to pick right up from where we left off. So what we're talking about is the Society of the Spectacle, um, particularly Chapter 4, if we might get to that, uh, which is about the proletariat and representation. Um, and I had mentioned that I, I believed that, uh, that the board's aim of overcoming alienation was misguided and that the goal would be to learn to, and, and create a society that could take up alienation as a kind of freedom. And you basically, I think, agreed. And you were yeah, going I agree. Explain, you, you were going to explain why DeBoard uh, ended up in this romantic position, and you were starting to blame Lacan. Right. So, I mean, I guess, um, well, a couple of things. So, as a Lacanian, DeBoard mm-hmm. um, does take issue with representation per se, representation as such. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sees a liability in that. Um, we might even say mediation. So, you know, so going back to Rousseau, you know, who's the originator of this concept of alienation. Um, alienation is dialectical. It's double-sided. And of course, Rousseau is a bourgeois thinker. So the way he thinks about social mediation and alienation in a productive as well as in a destructive sense, mm-hmm. it's profoundly influential for Kant and Hegel as philosophers. So their, their whole notion of metaphysics and a social metaphysics is derived from Rousseau. And I think that there's been a kind of a mistake made by Marxists um, that they think that the problem is the social metaphysics per se, mm-hmm. rather than the specific social metaphysics that we're dealing with in capitalism. Right. And... You know, I would say in its most utopian moments, Marxism, and I've written about this in my Ends of Philosophy piece, um, does seek to overcome metaphysics per se, or insofar as we've experienced metaphysics historically hitherto. So, right, and so that's the, that's the kind of paradox, is that on the one hand, it would be a transformation of metaphysics, as profound as the transformation of bourgeois social metaphysics from that of traditional civilization, religion. Mm -hmm. But probably would go beyond that transformation. In other words, um, would would go beyond philosophy, even bourgeois philosophy, which is something new and different from ancient philosophy. So Mm -hmm. you you find moments in Marx and Engels where, you know, especially regarding materialism, it ends up being assimilated to a kind of an empiricism, which it's not. Right. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. some kind of like, you know, anti-metaphysics. But still, there is an, a notion of overcoming, abolishing the Aufhebung of metaphysics and the metaphysics of representation. Now, in politics, right, um, there's the issue of the modern republic, you know, modern democracy and how it can't be ancient democracy. It can't be participatory democracy. It has to be representative and therefore, there has to be a non-identity and an alienation between the representative and those that they represent. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, really, it comes down, I think, to the party question. 
In other words, the party as representing the historical mission of the proletariat. That's what mm-hmm. Debord doesn't like. And that's what I think has to be defended. Right. Okay. <clears throat> so let's unpack some of this because one of the um, difficulties is that by talking, just by talking in terms of metaphysics, the social aspect of the difficulty kind of drops away. There's a way of talking about metaphysics that, you know, is that's common to the realm of philosophy, uh, where, uh, you know, and if you learn philosophy in, in, at college, uh, mm-hmm. or just through textbooks, it, there's a, there's a, uh, an assumption of a continuity of the category of philosophy as if, you know, the Buddhists are talking about something similar to Rousseau. Oh, God right? help us. You, you know what well, I mean? From, at least from Aristotle to Hegel. Right. Right. But from, maybe from, from also Plato. including non-Western. Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, including non-Western, they try to pack that in, but there's certainly, no. you know, uh, 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 uh there's an attempt to make a con. You start with Plato, mm-hmm. and then you go uh, and through some sort of path to um, around Kant, maybe, and then mm-hmm. you stop. Is really how? Oh, right. Or, they or, stop or, before Hegel because Hegel's they, jumping the shark for them. Right. And then you go from Kant to the analytic tradition to Wittgenstein. Yeah, you skip over Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Marx. Right. Hegel. <laughs> yeah. 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 You skip over all the um, all the devils of the 20th century, all the fascist philosophers. Right. Right. So, um, but but nonetheless, like metaphysics itself, you know, it's described in a variety of ways. You might talk about ontology. You might talk about the the substance of the world. But the the main reason that metaphysics exists is because there the human beings have discovered that there's a difference between the way the world appears mm-hmm. to us empirically mm-hmm. and the way the world is in itself, the way the world uh, actually is, you know, the, the, what it, we want to know what it's really made of. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and um, the, I, I think the reason why uh, the, the world appears different than, it is. There's a couple of reasons. One is because we're perceiving self-conscious beings who have brains and represent mm-hmm, the world to mm-hmm. ourselves, but also because we're cultural and social beings that come up with explanations and ideologies to understand. So this is very Rousseau and Kant. This is very <laughs> right. bourgeois. No, and it's fine. It's good. I mean, I would I would say that because the board is Lacanian, he's also by virtue of that Heideggerian. And, of course, Heidegger is taking issue with all that. Heidegger thinks that the problem is thousands of years of Western metaphysics that has forgotten being. And Marxism, unfortunately, Marxist materialism, has been, in the 20th century, assimilated to a kind of Heideggerian ontology. And that's deeply unfortunate. But rather than talk about philosophy, let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about the political implications of it. Well, that's what I was trying to get to yeah. when I came, got to the social part. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because um, for for Hegel, the uh, the fact that the uh, that uh, we have this uh, appearance um, or this ideo- ideological perspective, or we have perceptions which are socially um, produced, mm-hmm. uh, becomes uh, 
uh, the way in which we can actually experience substance, the way in which we can actually yes. experience the real, that yes. we're, we're not actually, the, the, the very fact of our perception throws us into the, the substance of the world. We, mm -hmm. the, we're not cut off from metaphysics, but we, we have access to it precisely through uh, uh, the way in which we're divided from it. Uh -huh. Which were cut off from it, and that's mm -hmm. a difficult thing to to grapple with. Yeah, yeah when you first dialectic. hear it, it's, yeah, when you first hear it, it's just it sounds like you know flim flam. Uh, I think to to a lot of people. Well, I mean, maybe for some people it sounds like flim flam. For other people, it sounds like you know deep esoterica. You know, right. I think that it's something much more straightforward, and it's it's okay to stay with Kant on this one. I think. Okay. Um, I know the Hegelians will scream. But I think an artificial distinction between Kant and Hegel has been introduced. That's unfortunate. Um, you know, meaning a kind of a subject-object dialectic or a theory-practice dialectic, and a metaphysics of understanding that mediation. You know, the subject mediates the object. The object mediates the subject. That we only become subjects by virtue of objectifying the world. And in objectifying the world, we come to recognize our own participation in that. And that's where our subjectivity comes from, right? right. So it's not, it's not sense data perception. It's not our animal senses, um, but rather uh, something that really comes from society, namely our, our practices and our ability to reflect on those practices. And that's why I said it's really Rousseau. You know, it's there when Rousseau distinguishes between human and animal reason or cognition. So animals reason... He says they just have internalized pictures of the world and, you know, given to them by their senses, uh, whereas we can transform how we imagine the world, right? So we can, we, we don't just have a kind of replication of sense data perception in our minds, but it's altered and it's altered by virtue of practices that, you know, real interaction with the world, real, real relations with the world that come from society, that don't come from our biology. Well, Chris, I have bad news for us. We're getting now the combo of digital interference and that static. So here's what I'm going to suggest that we do. Now I can't hear myself. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, good. Yeah, you sound good, uh, actually, too. I know you don't like that, but it's better. Um, okay, so alienation is not just a feeling. In fact, the feeling of alienation might be a good thing because it's you're beginning to discover some mm -hmm. facts about the world when you feel mm -hmm. alienated. Um, and, uh, I, I can, I concur. I say the feeling of alienation just because it's a habit of, of, of speech or something. It's a, it's a habit. It's a, it's a way of, it's a way it's usually think, so spoken of. I think we see alienation and this gets us back to the party question. Okay. That you, we see alienation, not in the immediate moment, but in history, mm. right? So it's not that, you know, like in your empirical reality, just walking around that you experience alienation. Um, it's rather where history asserts itself and where, you know, we feel a kind of historical dislocation, you know, mm. um, and that is where we can recognize um, that the world is not as we intended to make it. Mm -hmm. right. right. 
Yeah. Um, and that, so the, the question... Nor is for, it recognizable. You know, in other words, it's, it's not what we intended to make, and that's okay. Maybe mm. we make something different from what we intended. That would be freedom, too. Um, but rather, you know, it feels like something that we can't take responsibility for. Right. right? Yeah, because when you sit down to write uh, a short story, say, something I've done, you have a vision of it in your mind, and then mm-hmm. uh, inevitably, the, the, when you finish, what you've come up with is usually quite far away from what you originally mm-hmm. intended to write. But yep. you can still recognize your own work in it, and even right. the original vision in it. That's right. Uh, hopefully. And, you know, maybe... Your participation some... in it, your, the process of it, Right. You know. But the just the very fact that you're working through time, that your your original conception is going to be uh inchoate, you know, un- unexpressed, um uh means that once the expression occurs that it will become objective, alien from you in some ways. So let's let's use a topical thing. Okay. Shall we? Mm-hmm. Abortion. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, we supposedly gained sexual and reproductive freedom in the 60s, but have we? Well, uh, not in any kind of permanent way. Um, no, no, no. Seriously, even before they overturn Roe, which they might, they probably Which will. they might. Well, they, they probably they will? will because the protesters will push them into doing it. Oh really? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, let's, like- let's 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 talk about this for just a minute. What what you mean by that? Because it it did seem to me like the leak uh, of uh, the Alito uh, judgment or the statement memo. Uh, huh? <laughs> yeah, memo it, opinion. His opinion, right? Um, what uh, shouldn't have necessarily been taken to be conclusive as to what the court was going to no. do. No. Right. But no, it's right. being taken that way. It um, was a pressure tactic, either coming from the uh, like progressive side or the conservative side. Maybe in conjunction with each other. Who knows? Uh, but, <laughs> you know, it's certainly Some benefits- secret deal among the millennials on the in the staff. Yeah. I mean, it certainly does benefit the Democratic Party in this moment. We'll see. Well, at least it, it seems to. I think it would. I think it will mobilize the core the it will take people who were feeling disaffected and uninspired and give them a reason to vote um but uh yeah so you're saying though before the overturning before any of that have we achieved the sexual and reproductive freedom that we were promised by the 60s no right right definitely and not and okay so in what ways what was the vision of that freedom? What was our original intention when we were looking for sexual freedom? Individual and collective autonomy. To make our lives as we wanted to, both individually and collectively. You know, Juliet Mitchell, Women the Longest Revolution, 1966. You know, that we could rearrange our relation to sexuality, to gender roles, to kinship structures, to intergenerational relations... And that would be part and parcel of changing our relationship in the division of labor and in social production and social reproduction, all those things. Have we achieved more individual and collective autonomy? Well, I think that there is a case to be made that for that 
women have achieved more autonomy since the 60s in terms of both their ability to seek divorce and in, uh, to, to get out of uh, marriages that are unwanted and in terms of economic independence. Um, more women are working today. Um, and uh, also they're... That's not part- what people wanted in the 60s. They right. didn't want to. They didn't want to make uh, family income dependent on two earners. They did not want that. Well, okay, that's the unintended consequence of autonomy un- under. Uh, well, it's predictable. Capitalism. People knew that it would it would happen. In other words, like Julia Mitchell, who's still alive, she very much says this is not. We have not achieved what right. we intended. And not because it's unintended, but because we didn't overcome capitalism. Right. Okay. Sure. Okay. So, right. So, in other words, in capitalism, it's always going to be not. But if you if you are aiming at sexual liberation, liberation around the category of romantic partnership, uh, eroticism, reproduction. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and gender say, it's um, a mistake to think that only happened in the sixties. It's been 200 years since women could choose their husbands. Right. Been more than 200 years. That's the bourgeois revolution. That's right. not what we're looking for now. Yeah. Right. We're looking for something that is not about, you know, cause with, with women getting the right to vote a hundred years ago, with that comes legal juridical autonomy of all kinds um, and, you know, leaving behind a minority status, you know, being a minor, being a dependent. Um, and, you know, so alienation is that, the sudden recognition that what we think is freedom is actually unfreedom. Right. right. So, I mean, Yasmin Nair, you've interviewed her. Mm. She's big on this. Like, gay marriage, what is that? Is that freedom or is it unfreedom? Right, but but I'm happy um, to have the right to get married, but I'm also very much aware that it is uh, now compulsory for gay people in the way that it was for straight people. If you want, it? if you want partner benefits, you have to get married. You can't just be a domestic partner. You have to get married. Right. Yeah. And um, why is that? Because companies don't adjudicate who's married and who's not. They want the state to do that for them. Right. Right. And so it, it means, you know, like, am I married because I love my husband or am I married because we need two incomes to afford a decent apartment in Chicago? We need two incomes to afford a decent apartment in Chicago. And because we are not just roommates, meaning, you know, we are financially dependent on each other, then we need the state to recognize certain things and we need the option of sharing health insurance and you know we we, it's basically a cost-cutting measure marriage Mm. is a cost-cutting measure for individuals and for society right okay Uh, that's right um but i don't want to get rid of gay marriage right no i understand but come on like what is it really how does it function in capitalism what is it in the same way that you know like i don't want to get rid of like pornography but what is pornography is that like 
a realm of like erotic freedom? No. It's no, like it's, it's exactly modified it's, manipulation, yeah. you know. As as my uh, you know, hero, Sylvie Zizek points out, it's probably the most conservative genre of filmmaking around. It's oh well no doubt about that. A filmmaking, yeah. but we're not talking about filmmaking. We're talking right. about like, you know, have we liberated the gays by getting rid of obscenity laws? Not really. We've we've channeled it. Right. Well, I mean, the, okay. Well, two things. One is to, to, just on the subject of, you know, sexual liberation or uh, you know the the freedom for uh, particular groups in society, like homosexuals or whoever. The problem is that the baseline relation under capitalist society is one of unfreedom. So you, when you you might. You but know, why? That's the real question. Like the question is, what are we? What is the nature of our freedom? It's not patriarchy. It's not no. gender. It's not Handmaid's Tale, right? This shit no. that we're dealing right. with now. That right. is not what's going on. Um, nor is it, you know. I mean, it's. It, look, the point being, abortion is thousands of years old. It's as old as the human condition. Infanticide mm. was practiced. Right, so human cultures have done this for a very long time. Human society and culture has done this for a very long time. Of course, animals do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, animals, you know, male animals abort the fetuses of competing males in the female animal. I mean, you know, that's just like reality, right? So mm -hmm. abortion always exists. It exists forever. It will always exist forever. Mm -hmm. So what are we talking about? We're talking about like a legal right, right? And we're, we're also talking about a manipulation of a legal right by a political process that demagogically mobilizes morality and cultural values to try to achieve political aims under the guise of law. Right. right? Now, how is any of that to do with freedom? Well... It, uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to say how it is to do with freedom. I'm going to answer that question. The 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 uh, move from uh, let's say a tribal culture in which you your abortion um, is achieved based on the whims say of a tribal doctor uh, and the, the the desire of the tribe overall um, and the the way in which you're situated in the uh, the the whole community um, is different and the and less free than uh, the a, a woman who wants an abortion. I think uh, that in individual legal. human beings still made decisions about that, even in tribal communities. Sure. I think that that happened, and so, but again, like let's not just sort of naturalize well, collective over individual versus individual over collective or something like right, that. I'm just making a, I'm taking a stab at the difference between the collectivity that mm -hmm. allows for more individual autonomy in a bourgeois society. Or saddles and, the individual with more responsibility. Both. Yeah, right, right, right. It's right. It's both. So we live in a society where now, today, where, mm -hmm. you know, basically... Biological reproduction is an individual responsibility. 
right? And because it's it's impossible without suffering catastrophic economic consequences for families to support the children of their children, right? So in other words, like you're, you're, you're kind of on your own. Like you can't, you can't bankrupt your parents by having a child of your own, right? Right. Which is what you would threaten to do. Like, you know, so we don't have the ability to fall back on as much, um, you know, other kinds of social support. Right. We are thrown into the labor market as our primary means of support. Uh, or you have to deal with the state. You have to claim welfare benefits. Right. You know, because um, that exists. Yeah. And so, you know, again, it's kind of like uh, we have a very hard time taking social responsibility for biological reproduction. So with personal autonomy comes personal responsibility. Absolutely. How's, how's that working? It's not, it's not working that well uh, today. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, I certainly, you know, the, the socialist position is to decriminalize abortion, period. And that's Absolutely. it. Like, in other words, the socialist position is not to make a moral case for abortion. Right. Or a cultural case for abortion. Right. No. That's on the individual, the community... Who knows? Like people have all sorts of feelings, values, and you know, support friends, family. I mean, overall, you know? socialism aims to decriminalize society to yeah to to um to operate on the level where criminality and the legal system, the police, are no longer necessary. Where right. we can take self, we will be responsible for ourselves. That's what you mean. It's not that those moral questions will go away. It's just no. that they won't be settled by, by the state. A state, a, state apparatus. Exactly. So this is the kind of the anarchist aspect of uh, the socialist vision of, of you know. Yeah, so why do communist countries criminalize abortion? Um, I, I depends on, I would guess, on the times which it was done. Um, yeah, but for a host of reasons. Economic, political, social, cultural, meaning yeah. they made concessions to popular morality. Right. They also made economic calculations, mm -hmm. you know, social policy. It is also in capitalist states. It's a matter of social policy and concession to popular morality. Mm. It's, it's a weird mixture of things. Right. You know? Um, and so... You know, uh, I think the way I wrote about it was abortion was made legal basically as a function of like the 50s and 60s coming at the end of that process where there was less of an imperative to have a high birth rate and in which morality could allow it, right? Mm -hmm. So those kind of meeting of those two factors... Um, and ironically, right, it also happened at the time when suddenly you had a surplus population again in the 70s, right? Mm -hmm. So you had a massive economic downturn and a deindustrialization and a lumpenization of the proletariat. 
And I don't know if you've ever heard of Freakonomics. Have you heard of Freakonomics? I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah so they, they think that the crime rate goes down when abortion catches up with the population demographics. In other words, that basically the crime spike is from too many people. And then when abortion really kicks in and cuts the population, then crime goes away. Yeah, and right. And they, they put it That's in probably terms true, of, by the way. Yeah, they that's, put it in terms of the, the, the people who uh, are, you know, the, the, the idea is that the people who are aborted are the people uh, who would have the, the, crimes. Who would have, right, who are ill-suited for society. Probably true. Probably true. If you're an unwanted child, you're probably much more likely to grow up to be a criminal. Mm -hmm. That is simply true. And right. why is that? Because of family structure society. Right. Right? No, I agree. So, but, <laughs> but, but, so, okay, so, right, so I, I concur with you that the, the ultimate solution... Abortion is a neoliberal thing. We're entering a crisis of neoliberalism. I'm not surprised that abortion is going to go away. It came with neoliberalism. It will go away with neoliberalism. I'm not surprised. Well, it won't go away. Well, it, won't go it away. never goes away, but right. it can go away in a different way. It, it won't even go away legal as a legal option for the majority of women in this country. That was true will... before Roe, too. Right. I don't know about the majority, but there were liberal states. Right. So I think that the majority of states, after the overturning of Roe versus Wade, will find a way to be able to provide their citizens but with so abortion, legal abortion. Getting back to it, though, alienation. Right, right. I wanna, yeah, when we, I wanna, when we okay, contemplate yeah. these things, when we mm -hmm. contemplate these things, rather than like getting fired up, you know, because that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to get us like very upset and politically mobilize us, which just means some fascist mob of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. A Democrat fascist mob or a Republican fascist mob. Mm -hmm. Let's resist that, shall we? Yeah. Let's take the stone cold, stone cold Karl Marx, Hegel long view yeah. of history. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And just say, when we contemplate these things as historical phenomena, that's when we can see alienation. Right. That's, that's right. And, and the alienation... Um, so the alienation that arises from the world that we, we build being built in such a way that we can't take responsibility for it and that we can't... Uh, we're victims Change. of our own creation, right? but we don't feel like we're unfolding, however, in a self-contradictory way, the progress and consciousness of freedom, right? which Hegel still thought could happen through reversals, through producing the opposite of what you think you're doing, socially, politically, mm -hmm. historically, that, that that is still freedom. The idea being that capitalism actually makes that even more paradoxical and more alienated. Well, one of the ways it does that is by taking the human, uh, taking the human out of society, taking the, 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 the uh, in other words, because of the way this is happening on the level of the economy, because our social relationships are now mediated through commodities and through the exchanges in the market. Uh, and because um, the world appears to be quantitative and material and that and we're kind of uh, subject to the whims of 
really impersonal forces. We, we no longer can even uh, see our freedom in uh, the, op, you know, the way our, our mm-hmm. actions produce our op, the opposite of what we want. And actually, mm-hmm. it, but nonetheless, that... Not that even world, in a historical long view. Right. right, and I feel like this is where Debord is a little bit of a naive, mm. because he's stuck in a kind of well, the Russian Revolution promised freedom but produced unfreedom. Right, and you know that's Hegelian, and that's okay because maybe we needed to learn that, and right. so that's what Debord assumes. He assumes, okay, we thought we were going to achieve freedom this way. We learned that it produces a new kind of unfreedom, the spectacle the cadre, the party. And now we, we continue the progress and consciousness of freedom by developing beyond the cadre party form. It reminds me of, you know, Moish Poston, so my old professor. So, you know, he condemned the Russian Revolution, etc. But he also treated it as Stalinism, the result, as somehow necessary. Mm-hmm. What if it wasn't? Right. Mm-hmm. And so I always you know, like to say, well, it becomes a kind of right Hegelianism. In other words, it ends up under the guise of theory, kind of affirming whatever happened as somehow, well, historical necessity must have bore out. It must have been because we weren't ready to overcome capitalism in 1917. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, I that mean... is the core of the argument. Right. And the core of the DeBoard argument is, well, we overcame that form of capitalism, but now we have this other form of capitalism, the spectacle. Right. Which right. is wrong, which is, I think, fundamentally wrong. We, the spectacle. It's true in some ways. It's a descriptive, you know. It's a descriptive in which the, the culture of, of, of a global capitalism appears. Mm-hmm. But the, the reality of the, of the, um, it's less of a change than he thought. Far less, yeah. Yeah, than he thought. Yeah. And yeah. therefore, actually requires less new than he thought, too. Like, Right. But, but okay, so here's what I want to get at, um, because uh, this is a very simple question. But do you believe that after a revolutionary change, that that Hegelian dialectic, that the, the alienation that is... Uh, I think necessary for freedom um, will continue. That we will have to cope with the fact that our uh, we, we you know that our aims will not necessarily com- bear complete fruit. That we may end up creating in the opposite of what we intend. We're going to create a new freedom problem. Right. We just want to get beyond the freedom problem of the value crises of capitalism. Right. But we will produce a new freedom problem, and that is not something that we can anticipate. And it's also not something that we can see in Stalinism. Right. So, like, this question of whether or not the, you know, the, I mean, in, from one perspective, Moish Pistone is clearly right that the world was not ready to overcome. Uh, no, no, no. He was not right about that. Because it's been ever less ready since then. Well, uh, okay. In other words, maybe it wasn't, but it's only gotten worse. Okay, so he thought now, it got better. Well, what was what was his thought? What was needed that was absent in that post-proletarian politics? Oh, yeah, he thought there we needed a post-proletarian politics, but he also thought 
that in order to have a post-proletarian politics, first you need a proletarian politics. Well, okay, now this is post-proletarian politics. That could sound like what you're saying is a move away from the attempt to overcome capitalism and instead... And that's what it's been. The new social movements have moved away from it. Right, okay, that, that's, that's what it could sound like it is. I just want to make sure this is what you're saying. Yeah. And, and, and a move towards instead focusing on the liberation of women on, it, on their own, the yep. focus on the liberation of gay people on their own. Or uh, not just women, uh, let's say gender. Let's say gender relations, that that is seen... Right. I mean, look, from a certain standpoint... You know, I know that this will like confuse maybe you, but it might confuse the audience more than it will confuse you. Mm-hmm. I'm not like, look, Marxism might be right or it might be wrong. Really. Mm-hmm. I'm too much of a Marxist to do anything about it. I'm more Fatih. I embrace, I love my fate. I'm a Marxist. Mm-hmm. But it might be wrong. So let's entertain the other visions. Radical feminism. Let's say that we don't live under capitalism, we live under patriarchy. And capitalism is really more a function of patriarchy than the opposite, than patriarchy being a function of capitalism. Let's say that that's true. Mm -hmm. Well, we had, we did have, you know, our radical feminist moment. We did. We can't pretend we were still waiting for it over the horizon. We did. Mm. Has it produced what they promised? No. Right. Now, of course, they can say that about Marxism, too. They can. The difference being, our queering, right, like queer liberation, like, you know, we've, we've made the world perverse. I was watching Richard Seymour and Daniel Tutt on your old Zero Books podcast recently, mm-hmm. and they were saying, they were really agonizing over Lacan. And they were saying, well, you know, Lacan says it's either the father or worse. And we can't say that. Right, because you know, to say we're pre-edible now is to say we've regressed. No, we're post-edible because if we say we regressed, we're going to end up being conservatives. Mm. Right, and and you know, we've moved from a neurotic culture to a perverse culture. And you know, is that bad? Is that good? Right, is that regression? Is it progress? Well, we have to say it's progress because otherwise we'll be end up being cultural reactionaries. And I'm like, no, why not just admit we've regressed? Pre-Oedipal is not post-Oedipal. We are narcissistic, mm-hmm. and it's, it's now not the father, but worse. I just am sh- It took me a while to process what you just told me here, Chris. You're telling me that you're watching what they're putting on the old Zero Books channel. This, this, is, this, is, a, this is Gulag, for, as far as I'm concerned. Putting that aside. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's a symptom. Uh, it's a symptom, and I just thought this is a real symptom, which is that people don't know what they want. No, no, I, I, okay, but what you're, you're, what you're raising, I need to address, but I just want to, on a personal note, yes, I know, tell I'm you sorry. how disappointed. Um, and uh, those are two haters of me, by the way. So I'm, okay, I'm hardly right. in a position of promoting them. Right, they right. hate me, hate me, right. and yeah. I'm just happy to see them circling the drain, like, yeah. con- contemplating being Lacanian or not. Right. So, well, I, I think we, the question of Lacan, we can come back to. Um, uh, you know, I'm not at all like I have my own critiques of Lacan and, and Zizek and all of that, but I want to, but, but to me, it matters what the critiques are. But the historical right. view, in other words, since father knows best since the fifties, right? Mm-hmm. Cause that's what we're hearing now. We're hearing, we're going back to the middle ages. Well, wait, maybe we're just going back to the fifties and that's bad enough, you know? 
have we progressed? That's the question. And I Look, would say that I from agree a Marxist we, perspective, maybe mm -hmm. we have not. There, I mean, that's right. From a Marxist perspective, we have not. And from the perspective of, uh, of let's say, Bentham, there's a, there's a maybe a case to be made. That, that, you know, that the, the total no amount of happiness points in the world has increased. There's a, you know, it's debatable. But the, it's but, totally but, debatable. Yeah, but, 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 you know, we might. But the issue of might... radical feminism, to come back to that. In other words, I'm mm -hmm. willing to entertain it all. I'm willing to say maybe the way we overcome what's bad about our society is through radical feminism. Or maybe the way we overcome what's bad about our society is Islamic fundamentalism. Maybe. Look, right, but I mean, here's the thing. The difference between certainly Islamic feminism, uh, Islamic feminism, Islamic <laughs> fundamentalism and uh, radical feminism, uh, p perhaps, and Marxism is the, the focus on and the aim of freedom. I mean, those things are not, the, the freedom is not the aim of radical feminism. It um, is. Of course it is. It's freedom from patriarchy. Uh, yeah. It's freedom not, from misogyny. But, but, right, freedom from, but it, that's not the same as freedom. Well, it's freedom to, I mean, it's a positive freedom in the sense of who knows what women might create unchanged from patriarchy and misogyny. Right, I, but I, I think that radical feminism could very uh, often enough becomes, or let, let, forget. No, by the way, Margaret Atwood, hmm. right, The Handmaid's Tale, she, her vision of Gilead is that actually the feminists join the Nazis. <laughs> right. That is her vision, right? Yeah, her yeah. vision is some perverse, like, weird meeting of opposites, you know? There's and she a, had a conservative a, critique of feminism. She's a red right. Tory. Right. There's a, there's, a, um, there's a way in which uh, other liberatory projects are not really liberatory but are uh, aiming at a return and you know in feminism it's a return to uh na the natural order of the mother or something like that that's, maybe that, i mean that's womanism that's not quite yeah. the same thing i mean if, i always have to remember you're on the west coast so who knows yeah, what right. you're dealing with over there <laughs> yeah, no, what right. about what about um parthenogenesis like what about exterminating the male of the species like there were oh, feminists. You, there's, who, there's a move. There's a movie with that premise. Uh, there's a novel, isn't there? Is it Monique yeah, Wittig? Or well, there, who is it? Uh, there might I be more than one novel. I, I've seen the the crappy Netflix movie uh, "World Without Men," which was oh, I did not fun. see that. Yeah, yeah. But but putting it putting aside feminism. No, I mean, novel, in other words, maybe for women to become free, the mm -hmm. male of the species has to be wiped out. Okay. Like, in other words, I'm, you know, look, wipe me out, fine. Like, I'm not, I have no, like, you know, there's no sentimental attachment to penises walking around. Chris, right? Chris, you're, you're not the problem. It's guys like me that are the problem. The straight guys. Why? Because I uh, nah. really want to get rid of. That's yeah, really I guess want. so. But they also, <laughs> you know, but, you know, like, phallocentrism, whatever, you know, like, everything. I mean, the gay the gays are phallocentric, aren't they? True, but you can maybe... And aren't they reducing... Isn't there an Andrew Dworkin crit criticism of gay men that they just reenact, like, heterosexuality among themselves? It's just an afterthought, is what I'm saying. It's an afterthought. The point is... <laughs> <laughs> but the, all, what I'm saying is, Marxism, like, 
for me, obviously, I have a kind of a worldview. I think about things as capitalism. I, I'm very wedded to the history of socialism and Marxism. Mm. The, the case for me about like why people should not be radical feminists or Islamic fundamentalists is that the greatest social and political movement of all time in world history of the subaltern Mm-hmm. was led by Marxism. Right. And so the track record of the others is weak. I want to right? go back to Postone. I've been er- I've been trying okay. to get back to Postone. Okay, go ahead. Because I don't disagree with anything we've been saying, you know, you've been saying so far at all, um, which which means, you know, obviously I should be canceled. But uh, <laughs> um, Postone, the post-proletariat politics of Postone. Yes, to equate that with an, a move towards the movement politics of the new He lab. thought the new social movements showed the possibility of a post-proletarian politics, even if not in kind of ready-made form. And he does think, he did think, that after the 60s, what happened was that the social movements became premature post-capitalism. Okay, and right. actually but, but, right, right, avoided right, po- the problem of capitalism right, in a bad way. Right, exactly. So this is important because... Because obviously, if the uh, proletariat eliminates, itself, abolishes itself, if we do overcome uh, the commodity form or the, the the society based on labor, and we overcome capital and capitalism, mm-hmm. then we will have a post-proletariat politics, and in a sense, uh, the revolutionary task of the is to produce that. Right. So it's it's not really to condemn the stone to say that he has that aim and it doesn't mean he's no. necessarily wanting to, to walk away from Marxism and say, okay, I'm going to embrace. Well, he Mark wanted to walk way. away from Lenin and that's, that's who I'm channeling today. Okay. I'm actually channeling Lenin all days. Okay. You may, not, may or may not know that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I kind of feel like, um, you know, what is, what did Lenin notoriously say about like feminism? He said, isn't it just a retread of bourgeois libertinism? Mm. And wasn't it better back then than it is now? Mm. Right? Like the, the kind of, I guess, cultural feminism of his time. And mm. Marxists were not feminists. They were anti-feminists. Like Rosa Luxemburg was an anti-feminist. Clara Zetkin mm. was an anti-feminist. The, when they said it was bourgeois feminism, they didn't mean that it was just rich women. Mm-hmm. They meant it was a vain attempt to liberate women within capitalism without overcoming capitalism. And that's right. why they were against feminism. Now, they were, of course, for women's equality, for sexual freedom, for liberalized marriage and divorce, for, you know, not abortion rights, but decriminalization of abortion. Because abortion rights means you can make the state pay for your abortion. Mm. And that's tricky. Right? In other words, under capitalism, that's tricky. Because that means it's going to be a political football. Right? Right. It means I don't want my tax money to pay for something I morally disapprove of. Some shit, right? It just mm. becomes this shit. And mm. by the way, the Democrats like it that way. Mm. They like that. It has well, that sure, because, yeah, because it gives them something to, to run on and to, to talk about and to... It gives uh, them an opponent. Gives them an opponent. Gives them a way to, to do capitalist politics. Yep. Yeah. Yep, and keep and, women enthralled to them. Even right, though and most women are anti-abortion. Yeah, well, right. There, it keeps their women enthralled to them. But the the, the 
I, I, no, I see all that, but I'm really concerned more about overcoming capitalism and what that vision Well, that's is. the thing, right? Like that, so that's the thing, and I kind of feel like, how are we going to do that? And, you know, I'm just very conservative about this, which is to say, we need a fucking political party that's going to overthrow the state right, so and this take is, power. So I want to I see the connection between... The board like, wanna, does not like that. And neither right. did Pustone. But but the board was clearly not saying okay we need to we did not intend anyway maybe dialectically maybe if we think dialectically about the stone and about the board and about the value theorists in Germany that they mm-hmm. end up actually avoiding their responsibility mm-hmm. to overcome capitalism uh, by even as they insist that they want to be absolutely uh, clear and 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 uh, hard line about the necessity for overcoming what they see as the fundamental of capitalism, which for De Board was the spectacle, and mm-hmm. for the value theorists is the commodity form. I'm closer to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But and you know, for others it might be the capitalist state. But they the there's all these different attempts to. Well, it's uh, one step at a time. Right. You don't overthrow the commodity form or abolish or let it wither away or whatever. You can't let it. it wither away. You have to overcome it through a you political act. You do have act. to do something, but even then it's going to be there. And so the question is, you know, what will happen to it? I mean, I would say, you know, so I'll also channel Adorno, I suppose, you know, in Adorno's Leninism. You know, that again, um, in the 20th century, you had a kind of regression of Marxism. You had a kind of recrudescence of romantic socialism and the idea that the problem of capitalism is like the division of labor, um, you know, specialization, uh, representation, political representation. Um, you know, and, he, you know, the, he, what, he, what he condemned as the... Um, resuscitation of anarchism as a ghost of itself. And that's in the 60s he's saying that. And he called it the impatience with theory, by which he meant the impatience with Marxism. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think the problem with, you know, whether Debord or Postone or the value critics is that they assume that the working class is organized as a collective bargaining unit economically, that it's politically organized as a political party or parties, it's got socialist parties and communist parties, mm-hmm. and it assumes a kind of social preponderance of the working class, like in the culture and in society at large. And mm-hmm. I think that all of those things have been undone or something has changed since the 60s. And so we can't assume that they were, they were ready to kind of transcend the old horizon of working class socialism. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, no, what you did was you liquidated it. But you also mistook what I would consider to be already a liquidation of it for its constitution, meaning the Stalinist Communist Party of France was not a revolutionary proletarian socialist party. It was not. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, clearly it wasn't. And so, therefore, you can't presume it and say we need to go beyond it. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, on that point, you are in agreement with the board uh, about his in in some ways about his critique of Stalinism. Although he would call he would he call it Leninism. Pro, yeah, he would call it Bolshevism. Yeah, and he would say that that is the the heart of the Russian Revolution to establish this. And I would say no, there's the betrayal of the revolution. I mean, I am Trotskyist right. in that sense, 
Right. But I'm also a follower of the Frankfurt School, meaning they also did not think that Bolshevism led to Stalinism or Lenin led to Stalin. They don't. Right. And so, you know, it's that is the big mistake of the left comms. You know, and that's where Debord comes from. He comes from the socialism or barbarism, you know, Castoriadis. Right. So, like, right, right. I know, I know. And what happened to Castoriadis? And Castoriadis is a Lacanian, too. Social imaginary. Right. Which is a term that Postone uses, too. It seeps in there. This Heideggerian stuff seeps in there. You know, yeah. the metaphysics in our mind is the problem. No. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, well, with Castro, so, but I, I don't think Raya Dornoskaya was Heideggerian, you know? She like, is I not. Don't, no. And she was also a part of that uh, milieu. Castriotis joined up with, the, you know, Raya Dornoskaya and wrote Facing Reality, and um, they had a little sect called, called that, and they, uh, he, they, he, was, he was aligned with the, with the Johnson Forest tendency. Yeah, there and, were lost souls in the 50s. I mean, they all become more or less lost souls, including C.L.R. James. And mm -hmm. I feel for them. I understand. I mean, I get it. Mm. You know, um, the Revolutionary Project was defeated, you know, and right. it liquidated itself in the preceding generation, in the 20s and 30s. Right. And at least we have C.L.R. James's history of the Third International to mm. help explain how and why that happened. Right. But... It's, I mean, Dinovskaya, it's a little bit trickier because then she retreats to Hegel. Right. Well, she tries to bring Hegel back into Marxism, which is something else that um, is I'm sympathetic. Yeah. I'm uh, sympathetic. Know. But, it, yeah. but the, the trick there is that it's got to go both ways. Meaning right. you have to see the Marxist critique of Hegel as not just a rejection of Hegel or an opposition to Hegel, um, and also not a transcendence of Hegel. It's a radicalization of Hegel, is what it is. Um, but it also suggests, I mean, look, I've been ragging on the Lacanians and the Heideggerians. There's a real crisis of Hegelianism, meaning right. there is like a kernel of truth to the anti-Hegelian philosophy. Um, and that kernel of truth has to be reckoned with. That's like a real historical phenomenon. It's not a thought error. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, in the same way that I would say Lacan betrayed Freud, but as an authentic historical symptom, not just as like a mistake. Mm. Right? And so in that way, you know, Dunyevskaya, you know, because she has her own way of like, restoring Hegel to Marx and Marxism, but without, or with, you know, her criticism of Lukács and Korsh and of the Frankfurt mm. School. Mm. Although, you know, dalliances with Marcuse and Fromm, mm. Fromm more problematically. Mm. Um, and there is this idea that I've heard from the Marxist humanist, for instance, Kevin Anderson, in an interview that we did in Platypus with him, where he said Hegel's more of a humanist than Marx is. And he thinks mm -hmm. that that means that Hegel's better than Marx. Mm. And I feel like, no, that's the problem. But that doesn't mean you become an Althusserian, where the anti-humanism is Heideggerian and Lacanian. Right. 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 
Yeah, so I mean, here's it. yeah, I mean, the problem. I I think I agree with most. It's not about of what taking you're sides. It's not about taking yeah, sides. Yeah, that, that's the that's the thing that when you when we start to use these names as shorthand for concepts, um, mm -hmm. it okay. easily becomes a matter of uh, you know, Camps. do you like do you like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? You oh, know, shit. You, <laughs> you know, yeah, um, and so right, like I I I feel as though it's important to remember that Lacan and Heidegger, while they may have influenced Heidegger may have influenced Lacan. Lacan did attempt to reject Heidegger uh, in, and you know, his, uh, it, there, there was a return, at least from Zizek's, uh, Zizek would argue that there was a return to Hegel in Lacan. Um, and you know, Zizek, it doesn't call himself a Heideggerian anymore. He's a Hegelian and, and a Marxist even, although not a very good one in my opinion, but a good, f good thinker and fun guy. Sure, and, sure. Uh, um, so the, the, what I would my say, my point is would be the dialectic has been lost and not accidentally, not as a thought error, but because the dialectic that Marxism developed um, was liquidated at a political level. Well, it couldn't exist except at a political level. Right. Because of the c commodity fetish, basically. It doesn't exist in the political economy on its own. Uh, and on, It doesn't exist in bourgeois society. It has to exist as a revolutionary And it force. exists in the recognition of alienation, it does. Meaning, okay. what we were talking about earlier. In other words, a, a, right. a view of history that doesn't throw out Hegel or junk Hegel, but recognizes that Hegelian history has been falsified in capitalism as like a real process. And so what we were talking about, in other words, um, so I'll, I'll invoke Juliet Mitchell again, mm. who said, you know, the problem is that capitalism changes and it changes through a dialectical process. It becomes its opposite. And so liberation can always look like it's the opposite of what it was a generation ago, mm -hmm. right? And we should also say that with the liquidation of a, of a proletarian socialist left, a Marxist socialist left, that a lot of uh, desire for freedom, impulse for, for freedom, is expressed on the right. And that's why I brought up Islamic fundamentalism, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there are various kinds of right wing, obviously, very different from each other and opposed to each other. But where the impulse to freedom is not taken up in a strongly political way in a proletarian socialist movement, in capitalism it's going to come out in ideological ways otherwise. Mm. It's going to come out on the right. Mm. And, that, and you could say, I mean, what you were talking about, like radical feminism is like radical womanism. That's like right wing, obviously. Mm. Um, but maybe also other kinds of radical feminism are right wing as well. Um, you know, certainly I'm suddenly thinking of like, you know, Adolf Reed and black nationalism is right wing and he even right. calls it fascism. It's black fascism. And he sees it as just a kind of vanguard of capitalism, mm -hmm. right? Um, like a kind of, uh, pseudo radical ideology of racial capitalism. Right. Right. And that's going to sound all very, you know, obscure to people. But again, being able to recognize that, which we barely can do today. In other words, that's why we have to talk about it in this kind of elliptical way. Mm -hmm. Whereas it was much clearer to Lenin 
that the dictatorship of the proletariat was not the realm of freedom. And yet mm -hmm. it was necessary. Right. It was not an advance in freedom. It was part of a political process that could yield freedom, but was not itself freedom. Right. The, so this is where I think that where a lot of times people on the left, especially in your starting out, you want to do this debate about questions that maybe you're not prepared to, to answer. And Anarchism what I mean and Marxism. Is, right. Like, oh, am I going to be an anarchist or am I going to be a Marxist? I want to know that at the outset. Do I believe in workers' councils or do I believe in the dictatorship of the proletariat? Uh, am I, you know? As like, if those you know, are opposites. Right, as if those are opposites. Right. But, right, so let's say they're not. In which case, then we might even have even less qualm with the board than we seem to be having because one of the things he keeps reiterating over and over and over again is that the only way to uh, to uh, beat the spectacle to overcome uh, this passivity uh, to to live just to have a life is to to put all power to the workers' councils. To I have I have news for you. The goal is not to live or to or life. We're we're done. Meaning we've lived and we didn't live. Like right, like uh, life does not live. Wrong life cannot be lived rightly. Adorno. Right. Right. And so what are we doing? You know, in other words, we are products of the past whose mm. task is to ensure that in the future, what we do doesn't make the future also a slave to the past. Chris, it just seems so unfair. But we me. are slaves to the past. I know. I know. No, but just because uh, for me, the way my mind works, I, and I am stuck. But I, the, the idea that I, I'm, I'm only now giving up on the idea of being the young generation, you know, a generation. Holy shit. 50, <laughs> you know, really. Okay. What is this it's middle age crisis? It's been like 10 years, really. But no, the point is, like, I realized it 10 years ago really firmly. But nonetheless, it's living memory of having that crisis. And to say, oh, yeah, not, that I was born too soon we're not we're we're just not struggling for our own liberation, and neither was Lenin. He understood that right right he understood it was not for his personal liberation or for the liberation of his generation. They understood that right they really did that's why Karl Liebknecht and uh Rosa Luxemburg could say revolutionaries are dead men on leave, but de Board definitely thought that he was struggling for his own liberation and the liberation of his generation. That's why it's infantile. Right. Right. Yeah. And again, maybe in but a that way was that, a, would, that was a common 60s. It was, but that fucking generation, look at what they did to us. Right. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They were That's, so narcissistic, and they left the world... They didn't care the world that they left us. Because they were wanting that revolution right then. Right now. Without, 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 a, without a plan, uh, you know. I mean, when I was, you know, you know that I'm, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you in another interview, but so I do this campaign for a socialist party, which is like a kind of guerrilla movement, like underground, like mm -hmm. something. Right, not not deliberately underground. Like we're above ground, but you know, one of the first people we recruited to it recognized right away um, a black gay guy mm -hmm. whose uh, 
extended family had participated in the civil rights movement, he said, it's a generational sacrifice that we're going to have to make. And that's the way the civil rights movement understood what they were doing, that they weren't going to live in the freedom that they were fighting for. Mm-hmm. Come on. Like, that's just political maturity to recognize that. Right. Right. I, I, I understand. I agree. But nonetheless, you know, maybe what we can say is uh, it's in order for people in the future, for us, for humanity. To not for, be dealing with the same shit we're dealing with. To live, to actually live and have, and have some freedom and responsibility. The, the workers' councils will, you know, will have to take power and transform yeah. society. And that's what the board was saying, even though he was saying it should happen right then. And even though he was saying, well, he why, was saying why am I why are my friends and, and I so sad? Why yeah, am I he, an alcoholic? It, it, it makes it makes some sense. Um, you know, I'm not unsympathetic entirely to that generation, but we do have to. There is an Oedipal struggle with that generation. There is. There's no, there's no getting around it because they were really smart. They're really talented. They're really privileged. They had a lot of time and energy. You know, they wrote these brilliant little books in a way that we don't, we can't because of our misery. We could do it. We're going to be able to, it's going to be a little bit less motivated. So I would say that again, he thought that, you know, I mean, it's a little bit, it shares the moment with Maoism which is that you can liberate the working class from the party, but that you do it on the basis of the working class being organized by the party, but then you make them rebel against the party. And then that's like the revolution. It's like the Kronstadt revolt. Mm-hmm. No, no. Kronstadt revolt. They were left SR anti-Semites. There were some bullshit anarchists they were not like the bolshevik rank and file rebelling against the party no that was not what happened but this is what people imagine and the reason that they imagine it is that that's their historical experience of these massive parties Mm. right that look like the obstacle to socialism and that were the obstacle to socialism but we don't have that now so i'll just one little anecdote i presented at a adorno conference Mm. um and in Amsterdam, of all places. And this kind of left calm guy, you know, uh, who is a kind of like influenced by value critique and by Postone. He was on a panel with me. And I won't, I won't name him just because. And, you know, and, and he said it was him, a, a baby boomer, me, and a millennial. And the millennial guy, you know, uh, I think Austrian, had said something like, you know, took a deep dive into the Frankfurt School and was sad to discover that their theory of late capitalism was just a Leninist view of imperialism. <laughs> right? It was like an anticlimax for him to realize, oh, no, they were just Leninists. You know, that there was mm-hmm. nothing new theoretically here. And then the other guy said that the purpose of critical theory today is to prevent Chris Catrone from reestablishing the Leninist party. He actually said that directly? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to keep that because it really is what we're up against, Doug. That's it's, crazy. It's what we're up against. It's but the, that's it's the least, reality. That's, that's very I mean, I guess I would imagine he had his tongue in his cheek when he said it. Uh, no, but, 
He was like hair on fire, kind of like upset by me. Oh. Yeah, he's like upset that I exist. Right? Oh, and he's like, right. you're a student of Moish Pistone, how dare you be a Leninist? And he recognized that I made a compelling case. Right? And so he's like, this is the threat. The threat is that we're going to repeat Leninism. And I'm like, we could only be so lucky. Right. You know, it, did I, I don't know if I've told you this anecdote before, but I once worked at a physician's answering service, and at that time, you know, I was in my uh, 20s, and uh, I, my first kid was on his way, and I remember going to, like, a zine shop and picking up some uh, weird pamphlet about Workers' Rebellion, Workers' Revolution, and I brought it to work, and I was reading it on my break. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, boss, the guy who very rarely came in, the person who really, really ran the place, walked through, and he saw me reading this, and he, was, he got livid. He said, you know, if that ever happened, this place would completely collapse. You guys don't know what you're doing. And he's just really like pointing at me. And I thought... That's true. In other words, there's, there's, a, there's a truth to that. I mean, I would say that um, sure, but 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 I was shocked. Yeah, that he deigned to, even, to care. To care, like, it was like like it was like oh, th- me reading this actually threatens him. I yeah. thought it was just some pose I was doing. I had no idea that. No, that, so what yeah. I would say is that it's better for young people today to read Lenin's State and Revolution than to read mm-hmm. Debord's Society of the Spectacle. It would probably have been better for me, too. Yes. Right. Yeah. As but. long as you didn't then later read DeBoard and think that DeBoard transcended Lenin or something. Right. right. Which is obviously what people thought in the 60s and in the 70s and 80s. And right. I just, and I feel like, and of course, to read Lenin, you have to read it all the way through. And you have to understand that the first determination is not the last determination. Meaning, you know, that the state is a, you know, class structure to keep one class down by another class because then later he gets into bourgeois right under the dictatorship of the proletariat and critique of the Gotha program and you know he he really gets all the way into the depths of the problem and you know and again a dialectical view of the state and revolution and proletarian socialist revolution and that again the the difference is going to be that it's going to be drier you know, it's going to be more sober. It's going to be like this book report. Um, it's not going to be the kind of aphoristic f- essayism of DeBoard. It's not going to be as enchanting. Right. You know, and so it's not going to be aesthetically satisfying. And it's not going to, it's not going to satisfy the bohemian rebel and romantic right. reader. Which right? is good. That's actually good. Because, you know, what did that become? In the 90s, it became a, a freaking lifestyle. You know, it had already become that 30 years earlier. It, it, uh, it was obviously a dead end to think that by being a certain kind of urban bohemian type, you could have your revolution without changing anything. That, I mean, that was what was that was dead already. On, that was dead on arrival. What the board represented for me mm-hmm. was was not the parts of the way in which he helped to facilitate the end of Leninism and the end of the Marxist project, but the fact that he was still of it, that the, the, mm-hmm. to read the board then was to turn away from, you know, uh, anarchism, the, the Clintonism, Clintons and the oh, anarchism yeah, yeah. of both. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It was to turn away from the, the, 
politics, the really existing politics of the moment, and to say, oh, there was something called revolution. What do you, you think know? of his further thoughts on the society of spectacle from the eighties? Com- Commonsense. I yeah. I think um, it's been a while since I've read it. I, I recall it being a turn to, into paranoia and conspiracism. Was it? Yeah, but maybe that's wrong. I'm not saying it was. That's what I recall of it. But I read it last around 2001. Okay, so you know? a while ago. Yeah, in a moment I mean, where, I'm not yeah. endorsing it per se, but I remember finding it interesting. Yeah, well, it's worth... I, I may... I'm going to take a break from DeBoard after I finish this series of videos. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and then... And I'm going to take up refuting... Um, Albert's unorthodox Marxism. Ah, from back in the uh, day. From back in the 80s where he says he basically refuted Marxism. And I'm just going to, because to me, like, like, okay, being anti-Lenin. Him and everybody else. Right. Being anti-Lenin, whatever, that's bad, I guess. Being anti-Marx, that I cannot uh, accept. I mean, the, the, the thing is what Lenin stands for. I mean, in other words, Lenin, you know, I think is like a titanic figure. I don't think we'd be talking about Marx at all without Lenin. Right. For better or for worse. For I mean, like, we might be, if, if the German Revolution had come off, we might still be talking about Sure, right. sure, yeah, but that would have only happened because of Lenin. Right. So, I mean, yes, that generation should have been eclipsed, right? Mm. Like, in other words, Luxembourg, Lenin, Trotsky should have been surpassed a long time ago. The mm. fact that we have to think about them now is a, is a tragedy. They, they would be chagrined. Marx we have to think about a Hegel now. We have yeah. to even, you know, we 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 have to think about a lot of stuff now that we ought maybe not to. But we well, Kant and Hegel, you know, because they belong to the bourgeois firmament, mm. you know, maybe they're not as disturbed. They'd be disturbed too by the fact that we're still cracking our heads against them. They'd be uh, they'd be disturbed, but they wouldn't be as disturbed because I feel like Marxism is a much more secular, political, like you know, more immediate kind of like ambition mm-hmm. whereas Kant and Hegel could say oh you know freedom takes a few hundred more years yeah what's that in the grand scheme of things right right whereas marxism is like you know the clock is ticking we're overripe for revolution you know right. every second after 1848 is a liability mm-hmm. you know cuz it's unnecessary you well, know? listen, I, I, I have um, to – speaking of not being able to live my life correctly, I have a therapy appointment uh, in about 10 minutes, so I, I should go. But um, this was great. This is a really good – you didn't really let me have the conversation I wanted. We had oh. the conversation that – no, this is, this is how it is. So um, okay. we had the conversation we needed to have because, yes. you know, there's two of us here. It's not just me uh-huh. pontificating. So uh-huh. this was really good. And uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to come back, not to the board, but to some of these questions that yes. we keep circling around. And uh, thanks, Chris. And it got and the sound got better as we went along. So that's Excellent. something I need to, to learn, too. 